In Crazy Rich Asians, Constance Wu plays Rachel Chu, a young Chinese-American who travels to Singapore to meet her boyfriend's family. Henry Golding plays her boyfriend, Nick Young. Rachel soon learns that Nick is from one of the wealthiest families in Asia. Hollywood has a long history of whitewashing, so the movie's all-Asian and Asian-American cast has been lauded as groundbreaking. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Stephen Thompson. Today, we are diving into the glitzy, glamorous world of Crazy Rich Asians. Here with me and Glenn in the studio is Mallory Yu of NPR's All Things Considered. Welcome to the show, Mallory. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here. It is great to have you. And in our fourth chair is NPR Code Switch reporter Kat Chow. Hi, Kat. Hey. All right. So Crazy Rich Asians is the first major Hollywood studio picture since the Joy Luck Club back in 1993 to feature a predominantly Asian and Asian American cast. Is it even possible, Kat Chow, for one movie to live up to that kind of anticipation? Oh, my God. No, I mean, there's just so much buildup. So how could it really possibly live up to it? And I think the thing about Crazy Rich Asians is that it is a great rom-com and it really should just be allowed to to be that. I think so often, because we have so few representations of Asian Americans, whatever we're talking about always has to be everything for everyone. And it's such a frustrating thing. And it it, it makes it so that you can't really almost even enjoy the the thing in question for what it is. So what did you think? I mean, you said it's a great rom-com. How, how'd you like the movie? Oh, my God. It was so enjoyable. <laughs> I mean, like, Constance Wu was really funny. Aquafina, who um, plays one of the supporting roles. She was Rachel Chu's best friend in the movie. She was hilarious. And I just think that it was, like, ultimately a really good love story. And I was just stunned the entire time. And I laughed so much. And I loved it. All right. What do you think, Mallory? I thought it was great. I enjoyed it so much. Once I could settle into the world, um, I felt like John Chu, the director, has so much affection for everybody in his cast. I mean, the way that he lingers on the set, um, the scenery of Singapore, the kind of rich absurdity of these people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, It was just a gorgeous experience. Constance Wu was really great. And I found it to be cast in a really interesting way. I thought you could tell that the the people who cast this movie were being really were being really deliberate about who they cast and why. And you can tell just in the way that people talk, their accents. Um Astrid Leong, who's played by Gemma Chan, she, you know, is obviously from a really wealthy background. She speaks with a really posh British accent and her husband, Michael, doesn't. And right. he speaks differently from everyone else. And in the movie, there's tension between him and her family. And the way that he speaks highlights the difference. And I thought that was really interesting and really deliberate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there, are some, there are some real subtleties in the way that they're presenting some of these different Asian families where there is massive wealth that is old money versus massive wealth that is new money. Uh, one of my kind of frustrations with the movie is that I, as much as I love Aquafina, I felt like her family, I could have done with like between one and three fewer members of her family. Mm. That's where you get, uh, that's where you get Ken Jeong mm-hmm. uh, and like the creepy brother who's sh- videotaping everybody with his cell phone. Like, like, yeah, I didn't love his character. <laughs> 
I that that family to me is the is really the only part of the movie that felt like overly broad mm-hmm. in ways that took me out of this kind of otherwise frothy love mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Glenn, what did you think? Well, I mean, I represent the cohort of potential audience members for this film who don't care about rom-coms, uh, who are going to get dragged to this film by their <laughs> friends and family who do. Uh, so uh, what's in it for us? Will it be an interminable slog? No, you're going to have a good time. Because there are jokes. Because there is Michelle Yeoh, who is oh my royalty. God, she's so Film good. She's royalty. Amazing. There's Constance Wu. There is, as you're going to get tired of people telling you, Aquafina, who right. Tiffany Haddish's away with this film in a big old way. And uh, here's a here's a tip, little um, service journalism. Eat first, because the food in this movie, holy crap! Uh, <laughs> it's like, not since Big Night have I walked out of a theater uh, so ravenous. I want you to go in with your eyes open, though, because they are serious about this being a pretty conventional romantic comedy. Right. They are not unpacking, they're not deconstructing, they're right. not interrogating any tropes. They are staring into that skid very intentionally. It is the year 2018, and there is a scene where the main character changes outfits in front of a mirror with her supportive best friend and a gay dude. That is rom-com bingo in one scene. (laughs) If you're prepared for that, you're going to have a great time. I think that's a point worth making is that as unfortunately novel as it is to have this cast and have this representation, it is easy to view the film as in some way revolutionary. And it is not. Mm -hmm. It is a very, very fun extremely well executed, unbelievably gorgeous to look at in every way, boilerplate romantic comedy with a story that is as old as the hills. Right, like, right. This is Cinderella. a This is Cinderella. I mean, this is just like this person who is not rich finds out that her boyfriend is massively rich. Mm-hmm. And so you have this mix of prosperity porn and fish out of water. None of that is new. But I do think, I mean, to push back a little, I mean, of course, besides the obvious, the ways that it is revolutionary, I mean, I know I just said that it's at its heart a really good rom-com, but at the same time, I I got to see it twice with two different audiences, which in a way helped me see the the smaller details that really hit and resonated with a white crowd versus a mostly Asian crowd. And... I mean, there was something really remarkable about like sitting in the theater and listening to all the canto pop, the Cantonese pop playing in the background and and just seeing people sway in their seats because it was music that they recognized or music that they understood some of the lyrics to. And there's so much different types of Chinese in there. There's Mandarin. um, I think there's Cantonese at some points. There's Singlish, the Singaporean English. And that was just really cool. Um, And I, I guess I don't really have much else to say besides it's sort of amazing when you don't have that and you suddenly do and it's all at once. Um, But that to me, it, it made me a little emotional seeing it that second time. Yeah, and I mean, just to push back on the fact that this is a rom-com, I mean, the fact that it's a rom-com doesn't take away from this movie in one bit. And I think this film is built on bones and follows a structure that audiences will know and recognize. So even if you're not familiar with any of the dialogue about Asian Americans and the immigrant experience or the difference between Asian Americans and people in Asia, you're going to understand what is happening in this movie because it's a rom-com, because there are these beats that audiences will know. And I think that's a real strength for this film, especially one that's introducing people to an experience that they might never have known 
I think the point about the music kind of hammers home what you're talking about. The the soundtrack is Chinese language versions of English language pop songs. And it is it's a very clever way of kind of telling you that like this is a story you know told from a different right, perspective yeah. and there's an extremely effective use of of yellow by Coldplay mm-hmm. in this movie <laughs> that's that stuck a somehow different version of that song in my head for days yeah. yep i really think the music supervision in this movie is extremely clever yeah, let me pick up on that. I mean, I think, uh, speaking as a white guy in America, you know what I haven't had to grapple with a great deal in my life? Context clues. Uh, <laughs> this film, for me, yeah. was about context yeah. clues. It's not, you're aware that there's shadings of meanings that you're not picking up on, and it's not about not understanding what's going on, because as, as Mallory said, the bones of this thing are right. solid. We never lose what's going on. What we lose, what I lose, uh, to some extent, is the cultural weight that it's landing on while other people's not landing on me. That's fine. I find that yeah. novel. <laughs> it's, it's a, it, you know, you're used to that with foreign films, but with a major American studio film, it's playing to your backhand. That's good. That's how you get to be a, a better film goer. Uh, it's like the reading comprehension section of the SAT. Uh, you, you glean things. Maybe the most obvious example, and I was really looking forward to saying this phrase out loud, climactic mahjong game yes. in the film, uh, in which I don't know what the hell's going on in the right. game, but... I know. I was that, like, I bet that's a good hand. <laughs> <laughs> what is being said between the characters is informing the game. The game is informing what they're saying. I get it, right? Because the direction is spot on, the writing's right. on, and right. mostly their performances. Mostly Constance Wu and Michelle Yeoh are just hammering the hell out of this thing. So we get it. We understand exactly what's going on. The fact that we don't know what that symbol means or what that, that, that doesn't matter. It's, uh, I get it to the extent that I need to get it to be satisfied that I understood it. Totally. So there's a scene in which Michelle Yeoh's character, Eleanor, who plays kind of the villainous mother-in-law figure that you all know from, you know, whatever romantic comedy, she tells Rachel, you'll never be enough for my son, for this family, for us. You will always be too foreign. You'll always be too American. You're not the same as us. And I was watching that the first time and I thought, this could be read on a shallow level just as a villainous Mm mother-in-law. But then Going one step further, as an Asian American who who often feels that way, who when I go to the Philippines or to Taiwan, I feel like a foreigner. I'm foreign, even though these are countries where I'm supposedly, quote unquote, from, I still feel different than them. And that added a whole other layer to this scene and it devastated me because it was like, it was that message that you get over and over and over from all sides. Yeah, I hear that completely. And I thought that was a really powerful scene because, again, like Glenn, I'm coming in into this movie and saying like, oh, wow, I bet that would suck. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I do have one other slight beef with this movie that I that I wanted to bring up, which is I, I felt like the relationship at the core of this movie between Constance Wu and Henry Golding, the, the relationship that is that forms the, the basis of the story, I felt like their relationship didn't really hang together as anything other than here are two of the best looking people you will ever <laughs> see in your life. And, 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 I, and so I, I felt like their relationship felt rooted in beauty instead of having the script, which I think is a sharp script, but I didn't feel like the script necessarily gave them like 
banter that showed like why they worked as a couple. I have a theory and a question. My theory hmm. is because you didn't see their meet cute, which in romantic comedies you're used to seeing. You're used mm-hmm. to seeing more, more of an arc in a relationship. They're uh, already together. They're at the already start together of this at the start of this thing. And I, my question is: Is that the same thing that happens in the book, or do you see them meet? In the book, you see her kind of thinking back to when she first met Nick. She wasn't looking for a relationship with an Asian man. And then her best friend sets her up with this perfect person. And then they go to dinner. And, you know, it's your, your kind of typical. They go, they <laughs> they go for drinks. Up, they bond over then, how good looking they are. <laughs> right. right. Um, but I think in the book, which you don't get in the movie, Rachel Chu's attraction to Nick Young is that he isn't like the Asian American men that she grew up around, hmm. um, that he's that he's a different kind of man, and she's wondering sort of why is he different? And the answer is and enormous yet, quantities of money. <laughs> exactly, and you know, I I always wondered why didn't she just Google him? Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah, that's exactly what I wondered because you know clearly if they're both professors at NYU, they're in each other's orbits and they know what what reputation the other person has. And that always just struck me as really kind of a blind spot. There is a scene um, toward the beginning where they're on the airplane and it's, you know, beyond first class. It's like they have their own suite. They're on their way to Singapore. Air travel is good now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Right. This is how air travel is good. (laughs) That is exactly the moment where Rachel finds out that Nick's family is completely loaded. And I I mean, like, I don't think I would have taken that as well as her character did. I mean, there was just something really um, like a hole in the plot that I, I felt could have been strengthened. Right. And I mean, as you're reading the book, there's this growing sense of, come on, man, just tell her. Just tell her that you're rich. Just tell Rachel. Oh, they, they keep it a secret longer in They the keep it a secret longer. I mean, he kind of brushes aside her confusion about first class um, with, you know, oh, my parents bought these tickets or my parents have a relationship with this airline. And you're, you're really unclear what is going on until she sees the mansion. Uh. I believe that's the moment in the book where she's like, oh, this is a level of wealth that I have absolutely no context for. And I can't even fathom what kind of wealth these people have. Right. Right. Henry Golding seems to me like, I mean, a lot of people are talking about Aquafina, who has kind of had a string of breakout performances. Henry Golding mm-hmm. in this, to me, like comes off like a leading man. If Idris Elba decides not to do Bond, mm-hmm. there's your Bond. Yeah. He right. looks, looks good in the tux. He's got the bone structure. Uh, he didn't pop for me because I think... He didn't pop I for me. I think the character either. is a little underwritten, but uh, yeah. Actually, I was thinking that the guy who plays Colin. Oh Poo, my gosh! Yeah, I was like, oh my gosh, they could have cast him as Nick Young. There are just yes. so many gorgeous torsos. Oh, <laughs> so um, beautiful. I mean, John Chu, thank you for mm-hmm. that female gaze. Mm-hmm. Thanks for lingering on those abs. Thanks for all those shirtless men. Mm-hmm. I do think, though, my biggest kind of criticism about this movie is that it really falls prey to kind of the sort of general Hollywood standards of beauty where the men who are supposed to be attractive right. and handsome and desirable have six packs and yeah. muscles and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and high cheekbones and beautiful noses. And that's great. But then you have, you know, Ken Jeong mm-hmm. and Aquafina's right. brother who are sort of chubby and they're su- they're and meant to be the clownish, clowns. right? Clowns. And they're shorter. They're supposed to be funny. And I felt like that was a note that I could have done without. Yeah, I totally see that. I'm, I'm still astounded that we have this film at the end of the day, um, which I can't 
tell if that's a sad thing or a completely cynical thing. Hmm. Well, I think we're going to get more. Yeah. Yeah. I don't oh, think yeah. it's going to be another 25 years. I think the most important thing about Crazy Rich Asians is that it's busting open the door. And you know what? If there's going to be a movie that busts open that door, I'm glad it's Crazy Rich Asians. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, tell us what you think about Crazy Rich Asians. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. And I have to do a quick shout out. Kat Chow, you just wrote an excellent piece about Crazy Rich Asians for the Code Switch blog uh, titled Don't Sweat the Rep Sweats and Let Crazy Rich Asians Be What Woo. It Is. Snap. We, Thanks we to do, Glenn for do, editing. Yeah. <laughs> we do encourage people to check that out uh, for more on this film. After the break, it will be time to talk about what is making us happy this week, so come right back. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Zoom Video Communications. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business. Meet happy anytime, anywhere with Zoom. Connecting team members across the globe. Imagine seeing up to 49 people on the screen at once in digital video. Share anything, a file, a video, a photo, via desktop, laptop, tablet, or mobile. Visit zoom.us to set up your free account today and meet happy with Zoom Video Communications. Zoom.us. Support for this podcast and the following message come from CBS All Access, presenting their new original series, One Dollar, a thrilling mystery that follows a group of people in a small Rust Belt town divided by deep class and cultural divides as they all find themselves involved in a horrifying multiple murder. Starring John Carroll Lynch and premiering on August 30th, visit cbs.com slash happy hour for your free trial of CBS All Access. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It is time for our favorite segment of This Week and Every Week, What is Making Us Happy This Week? Glenn Weldon, what's making you happy this week? Parker Posey has a book that just came out. It is called You're on an Airplane, a self-mythologizing memoir. And in interviews, including one on NPR, she has specified that she wishes it to be pronounced a self-mythologizing memoir. <laughs> um, now, you just heard that just now, and you had two gut reactions. One of two gut reactions. One, uh, ugh. That was, that was the first. <laughs> Reaction two is, oh, it's Parker Posey. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll allow it, but you better be going somewhere with this counselor. If you had the second reaction, you should pick up the book. If you had the first, don't. The conceit is that she's addressing you, the reader, as if she's sharing a row with you on a long flight. Look, she's a lot. She's a quirk fest. The book has all these clip art photos of herself kind of festooned throughout it, and, and she commits to the premise. Um, at one point, she puts a turban on you so you can match the one that she's wearing, which even though it's happening in a book, I was like, back off, lady. <laughs> this is too close. Uh, if you're a gay man in New York City, you've run into Parker Posey out and about. She's winked at you at a lobby in a Broadway theater, or uh, she's flirted with you while you're waiting for uh, a drink at a gay bar. Uh, she's a fixture. She's a part of uh, New York City's uh, queer atmosphere. Everyone has a Parker Posey story. And so whenever I go to New York, I start to feel a little wary because I know <laughs> if I run into her, I am way too basic and I'm, she is not going to find me remotely interesting and it will end in failure. So this book captures the essence of running into her with no risk for you. It's, uh, there's no possible <laughs> failure. She does all the talking. She tells stories about Party Girl and House of Yes and Guffman like you wanted to. Mm -hmm. She introduces you to her yappy little dog. And uh, she gives you cocktail recipes. She also shows you how to tie a turban if that's a thing. So uh, Parker Posey's You're on an Airplane. <laughs> nice. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. <laughs> Mallory, you, what is making you happy this week? So what's making me happy is 
this show called Video Game High School. It aired in 2012 to 2014. It's on Netflix right now. It's set in a world where video games are like sports and video gamers are basically jocks. They're the top dogs in this world. Um, A young gamer named Brian accidentally beats the best player in the world, and he's admitted to the elite video game high school, or VGHS. And the cliques in this high school are based on the games that you play. It is such a fun show. I cannot emphasize that enough. It is so fun. All of the actors and characters in this are these really sweet cinnamon rolls, and you just (laughs) want to wrap them in blankets and and tell them it's going to be okay. It's just really fun. And if you are looking for something that's low stakes and adorable, Video Game High School is the way to go. And, like, I'm not a gamer at all. I find video games to be completely incomprehensible. And this show really brings you into the world of these video games and really shows why they're fun for people. Video Game High School. Thank you, Mallory. Kat Chow, what's making you happy this week? So I've started watching The Good Fight, which is a spinoff of The Good Wife, where Diane Lockhart basically leaves her firm and goes to a mostly all-black firm. And I am not a person who was familiar with The Good Wife, despite having it be in my orbit. But The Good Fight, on the other hand, I'm thoroughly addicted. It has a lot of, you know, current events that show up in the cases that they're working on. So it's not exactly the escapist television that I usually go for, but it's like thoroughly enjoyable and addicting. And it's It says a lot about our racial landscape, and there are just so many kind of jokes and digs that I am not sure they would have been able to get away with had it been on traditional, um, you know, like network TV broadcasted through the airwaves. So I highly recommend that. Um, And I also started watching another show that is available streaming on Netflix. It's Kim's Convenience, and it's a Canadian show broadcasted through the CBC. But basically, it's about a Korean family in Canada, in Toronto, and And they have this convenience store, hence the name, and they're the Kim family. And it's just about family dynamics and what it's like to have a weird dad. And (laughs) anyway, but I mean, I really relate to it in all of its jokes. It's like less buttoned up than fresh off the boat. Not that we should even have to compare the two. But there's something about the humor that just really gets me. It's less kind of like earnest than other sort of equivalent, you know, 30 minute shows. So I highly recommend that. Kim's Convenience. Thank you, Kat Chow. Well, I brought a couple things, one of which I assumed was going to be taken by number one Mitski fan Kat Chow. But there is a new Mitski album out the day this episode drops called Be the Cowboy. Mitski a few years ago made, I would say, one of the five best songs of the decade uh, in uh, Your Best American Girl. This record is called Be the Cowboy, and it takes Mitski in many, many different directions beyond kind of just stormy guitar rock. Uh, She is (laughs) such an inventive and smart and cool and funny on Twitter. Uh, you can follow her at Mitski Leaks. Um, <laughs> this this new record is terrific. I'm still kind of digging into it. It comes out, like I said, the day this episode drops. The other thing is, uh, this is not a major news event, but I was delighted to see that on August 27th in Los Angeles, California, they will be unveiling a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for Weird Al Yankovic. There you go. 
Now, Mallory, your mouth is agape. I am assuming, because you, like me, assumed that Weird Al Yankovic got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, I don't know, 30 years ago? (laughs) Yeah. But it is not happening until the end of this month. The public, anyone in L.A., can go to Man's Chinese Theater (laughs) on August 27th at 11.30 in the morning. It is open to the public. They can watch Weird Al get his long, long, long overdue star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It just delighted me to no end. And seeing the wave of congratulations on Twitter from people like Mark Hamill (laughs) (laughs) has has filled me with joy. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at I Dislike Steven. You can follow Glenn at G.H. Weldon. You can follow Mallory at Mallory underscore you. That's Y-U. And you can find Kat at Kat Chow. You can follow our producer Jessica Reedy at Jessica underscore Reedy. Our producer Vincent Acavino at V. Acavino. And our producer Emeritus and music director Mike Katziff at Mike Katziff. Mike's band Hello Come In provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. Thanks to all of you for being here. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. And if you have a second and you're so inclined, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. It does help more folks to find the show. We will see you all right back here next week. The star and director of a groundbreaking new film have different ideas about who it represents. Is it an Asian American film? No. Yes. John Cho and Anish Chaganti on their new movie, Searching, this week on It's Been a Minute from NPR.